Well, as Pastor Brian said, we are going to continue our study of Daniel. And today we will be looking at Daniel chapter 8, verses 15 to 27. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. To the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told it is true. But seal up that vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. The word of the Lord. You've probably seen movies where the movie begins suddenly, you know, like somebody wakes up in the middle of the night sweating from a terrible dream, and you're like, what's going on? And for the rest of the movie, they backtrack. They go back and explain what's been going on and bring you up to the moment where the movie had begun. There's an expression called in medi arrest, beginning in the middle, and then for the rest of the story, you're playing catch-up as the storyteller tells you the rest of the story and brings you back up to the point where it began of great stress. That's kind of how we're approaching these readings. We can't read the entire chapter in, 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 on a Sunday morning. So we're, we're kind of providing for you the first half of the chapter or the second half of the chapter, and then together we're going to backfill and try and catch up to speed on what's been going on. So Cynthia read from the moment where Daniel was troubled and was trying to figure out what was this vision that he had. That's the second half of the chapter, which you heard. The first half of the chapter, I'm going to try and fill in for you briefly. Now, after the vision Daniel had in chapter 7, which we looked at last week, he sees another vision 
That was a dream. This simply says a vision. And it says he had a dream after that which appeared to him at the first, right? That basically means chapter 8 is building on chapter 7. Somehow, this, this vision is, is, is taking the dream of the previous chapter even further, okay? More understanding is unfolding as Daniel is having these dreams and visions. So, in chapter 8, uh, in verses 1 through 14, he has this strange and appalling vision. So much so was it appalling to him that it made him sick so that he had to stay in bed after an angel interpreted the dream to him. Now, the interpretation is what you heard, verses 15 through 27. So, this was the dream in the first half of the chapter, or the, I should say the vision. He has this vision, and he sees himself as though he is not in Babylon. He's in Babylon in the middle of the 6th century B.C. It's still during the Babylonian Empire. We're backtracking now. It's the co-regency of the son of Nabonidus, Belshazzar, in Babylon, around 550 B.C. or so. That's where Daniel is. That's where he's working. It's where he's living as a refugee from Judah. He was deported to Babylon when he was a teenager, just filling you up to speed if you're visiting. Um, so now Daniel, later in his life, uh, he's still working in the kingdom of Babylon, and he has another vision, but the vision is of him somewhere else outside of the Babylonian empire. He has a vision of himself being in Susa, near the Ulai Canal. Now, Susa was under the control of the Medes at that time. It was north, it was north east of Babylon by, by quite a ways. So he imagines himself there in Susa. And what he sees in this odd vision is that from the east, a ram comes, a two-horned ram, and it's exercising total dominance over everybody around it. This is a powerful ram doing whatever it wants to do. But then he sees in the vision another beast coming, not from the east, but coming from the west so quickly that it's like gliding over the earth. It's not even running on the ground. From the west, a male goat is moving, gliding with such speed and such force that it's dominating and overcoming everything around it, including the ram. The male goat overpowers the ram. And this male goat, he discovers, has one great horn, a prominent horn. But that horn, at the height of the goat's power, that horn becomes broken, and then four horns grow up in its place. And actually, then, out of one of those four horns, another little horn grows up. And this horn, Daniel says in his vision, was basically, it was, it was great. It was great in a menacing way. It was great in an unholy way. And it has some victory over the hosts of heaven and even defies God himself. This is strange and bizarre, I know. Um, now, remember, this is apocalyptic literature. When we got to chapter 7, we transitioned from historical narrative into ancient uh, apocalyptic literature, which if you remember the guide, we looked... Oh, I should have put that up earlier. Oh, well, ram and male goat. There we go. That's how far we've come so far. <laughs> remember, Exile's Guide to the Apocalypse. Uh, this is apocalyptic literature, so it is highly symbolic Yet, the symbolism was culturally relevant to Daniel and to the original readers of this vision. 
It makes no sense to us. They would have understand it, understood it far more than we do as we read it right now. Symbolic, but highly, but highly symbolic, but relevant to the original listeners. Now, in later centuries, this vision would become highly relevant to the Jews living in the second century. Even more so, it would become relevant eventually to first century Christians. Now, Gabriel, the angel, appears for the first time in Scripture here. And Gabriel provides some interpretation of the vision to to Daniel, but the full meaning, as we discover by the end of the chapter, the full meaning of of the vision remains, in a sense, largely obscure. It's unclear to Daniel. As he says when he closes the account in in verse 27, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And Daniel says, I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. We're trying to understand through the book of Daniel how people of faith, people who follow the God of the Bible, can flourish in challenging circumstances. Like Daniel, how people who uh, are committed to the God of Scripture and yet live in an environment that is not sympathetic to their worldview and to the ways of this God, how can these people flourish as Daniel, though he was an exile and a stranger, clearly flourished? I don't mean he was successful, I mean he was faithful. He was salt and light in his surroundings. That's what we're trying to discover in the book of Daniel. And a theme that keeps coming up again and again, this is a theme that came up with Daniel and the lions, with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, with the fiery furnace, through the entire first six chapters, a theme continues to develop in these visions, and here's what it is. If you want to follow the God of the Bible and remain true to Him, His priorities at times are going to clash with the priorities of this world, its leaders, its governments, its systems. When that happens, you will not have, if you're following the God of the Bible, you will not have the political power or the social influence to match the systems and leaders and governments of this world that are trying to accomplish their agenda. You won't have the political power. You will not have the social influence to match the power and influence of the kingdoms of this world. Daniel didn't. Neither will you if you're faithful to this God. Now, what I hope you will see in this is that God does not withhold trouble from us, but He doesn't withhold Himself either. He does not withhold trouble from His people, but neither does He withhold Himself from His people. You have trouble? Okay, but you have Him. And that's something Daniel discovered throughout his life as an exile. And now in the second half of Daniel, we're going to see that same principle not relayed in historical accounts, but relayed in the very visions that God gives to Daniel that he would keep and record and we would benefit from. Uh, People of faith for over 2,000 years have now benefited from. And what we're going to try and discover is uh, the trouble that God allows us to endure as his children. And then in response to that, we're going to talk about the trouble that God uses to accomplish his purposes in us and through us. The trouble that God employs 
ultimately for His good. And then finally, we're going to talk about the trouble that God overcomes, that God Himself overcomes in this world. So, the trouble that God allows, the trouble that He uses and employs, and finally, the trouble that He overcame, which gives us hope. Now, the trouble that God allows His people to endure, Daniel discovers in this vision, would continue. It would keep happening for centuries. It wasn't going to let up in seven years or ten years or even a hundred years. The trouble was going to continue for at least four to five centuries. The angel Gabriel interprets enough of the vision for Daniel to both amaze him and comfort him. So at first, I want to talk about what's amazing about this vision and then what's comforting about it. Here's what's amazing about the vision. The vision predicted with great accuracy events of the coming centuries, literally 400 years before they happened. Now, again, the vision is he's having this vision as though he's in Susa. Now, what's interesting about that is Susa would become the winter residence of the Persian kings, next empire. This is Babylon right now. The next empire, the, the empire of the Medes and the Persians, well, their kings, this was their summer hangout in Susa. Okay, now what's, what the other thing that's interesting is this is around the middle of the 6th century B.C., around 550 B.C. Interestingly, in 549 B.C., Cyrus the Great made his move and became the emperor of both the Medes and the Persians right around this time. It, so this would be like you or, or, or me having a, a vision, and in that vision, you're, you're taken to Beijing in China, a rising power or you're taken to Moscow in Russia, or something like that. You're having a vision, right? So, so th this is exactly what's going on for Daniel. There's significance to the fact that he sees himself in Susa, because the Medes and the Persians were starting to amass their own power and their own influence. It was not long after that that the Medes and Persians uh, defeated Babylon itself. Right, and so, so, so what happens? Um, Gabriel says the first animal, the two-horned ram, is actually the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians who defeated Babylon in 539 B.C. and ruled a large chunk of the world until 331 B.C. But then he says the goat, that Gabriel said the goat is is Greece. Okay, so Greece is on the scene, but not the kind of power and influence it would have 200 years from this point. But Gabriel reveals that the goat is actually Greece, on the scene, but not yet a world power. Two centuries later, however, like this goat flying from the west with speed and power, Alexander the Great, there's a reason he was called Alexander the Great, because as a very young man, like the age of 30, he essentially conquered a region of the world stretching from Italy to India, right? 30 years old. Now, we're also told that like this goat with a great horn that was broken at the height of its power, what we discover in hindsight, Daniel wouldn't know this, but what we know in hindsight, looking back on history, is that in 323, 323 B.C. at the age of 33, Alexander the Great died suddenly. This vast empire, he conquers it like that, he's dead like that. And four, four of his commanding generals, the most prominent ones, 
they divide up the empire into four parts. The largest geographical region of Alexander's empire is given to one of his generals, to um, Seleucid. And so the Seleucid dynasty essentially rules that portion of the empire for two centuries. This empire is this... Um, it was in 198 B.C., actually, that the Seleucid Empire gained control of Palestine. Right? So the Jews eventually, under the Persians, would return to their land. Some of them would return to their land and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild and build a new temple. And at, at some point, um, the Seleucid Empire takes over the Ptolemaic Empire, and, and, and now the Jews are, are under the Seleucids. 198 B.C., from that point forward. Now, now, if it's getting confusing, just stick with me for a second, okay? We don't normally do this on a Sunday, but it's Daniel. We kind of have to. Um, there's this little horn. This little horn shows up. Not the same little horn from Daniel chapter 7. It's some other little horn. It grows up out of this, out of this male goat. And, and this little horn is... Uh, Actually, uh, Gabriel describes him as, in verse 23, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, okay? This isn't a clown with a goofy-looking face. This is a powerful person who is very intelligent. That's what the expression means. A leader who's—think of how dangerous this is—a leader whose intelligence equals his arrogance. This is a classic dictator, that the vision is speaking of. Doesn't name the dictator, but we already know uh, in, in, in hindsight of history, we know that we're, we're, we're dealing with the Seleucid Empire, which was one of the remnants of Alexander the Great's empire. Interestingly enough, this leader um, would oppress God's people, would suppress their ability to worship God, and ultimately oppose God Himself. That's what Gabriel says in interpreting the dream. Now, looking back on history, what we understand four centuries after this vision, in 175 B.C., Antiochus IV, ruler of the Seleucid Empire, began his infamous reign. And what, now, now when, you, when you think about the size of that, that area, and you think of all the languages and all the people groups and all the nations that he's trying, he's trying to control and unify under his vision and his agenda, what does he do? He decides to Hellenize the entire area. Hellenize means he wants everybody to speak Greek, and he wants everybody to act like Greeks. He's trying to bring everybody under one language and one culture. That was his goal. And people groups were oppressed, and probably the Jews the most so. He, he abolished the use of the law of Moses. He tore it up and burned it, and then he forbade people. He forbade the Jews to possess copies of the book of the law and to practice the law of Moses upon the penalty of death. He abolished the act of circumcision, essentially saying, you cannot be Jewish, I will not allow it. Um, he massacred many Jews, innocent men, women, and children during his campaigns. In 167 B.C., he entered himself into the temple in Jerusalem and dedicated it to Zeus. And he sacrificed a pig. You know how pigs were unclean to the Jews? He sacrificed a pig to Zeus in the temple. And actually, that is most likely what is described in verse 13. This is Antiochus. There he is. The transgression that makes desolate. 
This will come up again later in the book of Daniel, and it will be used by the authors of the New Testament as well. Actually, an ancient coin with a bust of Antiochus reads this, King Antiochus, God manifest. Manifest, that's why he's known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Because Epiphany comes, that's where the word manifest comes from. So he declared himself King Antiochus, God manifest, bearer of victory. You know, we've tasted in the last year what the pandemic has done, right? How, how, how disease and understandably some government regulation has limited our ability to worship together. Our elders had a retreat yesterday, a wonderful retreat. And one of our brothers, after we sang the song, um, oh, geez, what was it? Great is thy faithfulness. Uh, our brother said, you know, that's the first time I've sung in person around other Christians in a year. All right, so, so we've had just a taste of what it's like to, to be somehow inhibited to worship openly and together, okay? For over three and a half years, from 167 to 164, the temple was off limits to the Jews, and it was used, um, it was used in a sacrilegious way that humiliated them and scandalized them by a foreign dictator, all right? Um, we cannot imagine what they went through. Some people in the world today can, but we can't fully understand that, right? Daniel's vision, four centuries before these things took place, was amazingly accurate. Some people like to say it was written hundreds of years later after all these things happened. The problem is, uh, when you look at it in detail, it doesn't read like a document that was created four centuries, five centuries after Daniel. It fits Daniel's time period. So this amazingly accurate foretelling of the future is, is frightening to Daniel. So you may be saying, well, how is this comforting at all? I mean, Daniel was sick to his stomach. Daniel ended up in bed, and he was deeply troubled. So, so why should we be comforted? Here's why. God reveals in the vision that although he would allow these things to take place, he would eventually end them. Daniel hears one angel ask a question of another, how long? For how long is this going to endure? Sounds like the Psalms. How long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? One of the angels asks, how long will this terrible thing happen? And the other angel replies in verse 14, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary, sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, scholars have different opinions. Does that mean, do you, do you interpret 2,300 evenings and mornings as half days? So that that's really just 1,150 full days, which is just over three years? Do you interpret it that way? Well, it turns out historically it was about three years that, that those shenanigans went on in the temple in the second century B.C. Or is it just literally 2,300 full days? There, there, there are differences of opinions. Here's what's important. Remember what we said last week. If you get focused too much on the details of apocalyptic literature, it's like you're studying the tree and you're missing the entire forest. We don't interpret it literalistically. We interpret it literally according to the original genre. So what's the big picture here? Well, what's interesting is that Gabriel doesn't interpret this part of the vision. 
He talks about this is, what, this is who the goat is, this is who the ram is, this is, and then he doesn't specify the 2,300 evenings and mornings. He just lets it go, right? And then what, did he, what does he say in verse 26? The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, Daniel. Lock it up, for it refers to many days from now. You see, it's ambiguous on purpose, but it's definite. It's sort of a we'll get there when we get there type of an answer, right? When are we going to get to Disney World, Dad? When are we going to get to, you know, every hour? When are we going to get there? Are we there yet? And eventually, like Mr. Incredible, we'll get there when we get there. It's going to happen. But that's for me to know. I want you to enjoy the ride. Go to sleep. Look at the scenery. If you're on 95, there's no scenery. Anyway, enjoy the scenery. Read a book. Watch a movie. Talk to your siblings. Let's sing a song. Not going to happen. But this is sort of a, we'll get there when we get there sort of an answer. It's going to happen when, how. That's not for you to know. So seal it up. Don't misuse it. That's how we have to understand apocalyptic literature. It was intentionally ambiguous so that they would not miss the greater point. I'm going to let this endure, God says, but I'm going to stop it. It will stop. And what we know is that in 164 B.C., 400 years later, um, a rebellion was led by the Maccabees in which the Jews captured back their temple and their country, at least for a century until the Romans came. But it's, 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 it's the Hanukkah celebration. It's the festival of Hanukkah that commemorates that moment in 164 B.C. when the temple was taken back from the Seleucids and dedicated, which is what Hanukkah means. It was rededicated to Yahweh. So God in history did bring an end to that abomination that made desolate. But in 550 or so B.C., 400 years before, Daniel had to live in the tension that oppressions would continue. And it made him sick. And he was appalled. And as we saw last week in chapter 7, this is how human governments operate. When fallen people, excuse me, when fallen people create systems that are fallen and try and maintain their power and influence, this is what happens. But within these broken systems, God employs trouble for our good and for His glory. It's interesting how the passage closes in verse 27. What does Daniel say? I was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business. We can't miss those last words. I got out of bed, right? I took a few ibuprofen, some vitamin C, and I got back up and I went back to work. He went back to work. After being worried sick about future Greek oppression, he went back to work for his Babylonian oppressors, <laughs> knowing that more would come. Of which we already know from chapters 1 through 6 that Daniel, when he got up and he went back to work, he outperformed. 
everybody else. With integrity. With integrity. He didn't manipulate. He didn't dominate. He didn't complain and argue. With intelligence, with respect, he outperformed everybody. He was a witness. He was salt and light. He got up and he went back to work. And I think what we have to take out of this is some Pixar wisdom. When Dory said to Marlin, just keep swimming. Once you get past the initial shock of what has just happened in your life, we have to find a way to just keep swimming. Whether, you're, um, whether, you, are, whether you are living with the ongoing wounds of having grown up in an abusive home, whether you have the wounds of psychologically being bullied, uh, whether you are living with chronic pain from an injury or a disease, whether you are, as, as I am, troubled by what we see happening in, in our society on a weekly basis, whatever it is, uh, we in faith have to find a way to keep swimming. Are you wondering why? Because you trust in a God, if you're a Christian, because you trust in a God who permits pain but will not allow you to endure it forever. You don't know when it will end, but it will definitely end, is the hope of Daniel chapter 8. The Apostle Paul put this type of hope this way in his letter to the church in Rome. He's telling them that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He's talking about how we now have reconciliation with God because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says we rejoice in that. In that. That's the hope of the glory of God that we rejoice in. But listen to him. He says not only that, but we rejoice, what? In our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces, listen to this, endurance. Endurance. Just keep swimming. And then he says endurance produces character. Character. Integrity. That's what Daniel and his friends had. That's what so much of the church in our society has lost. Integrity. It says that persecution and suffering produces character. Why do we not have integrity? Because we're not used to suffering. He says, rejoice in our sufferings because our sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces what? Hope. You can't keep swimming without hope. And hope, he says, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. So we discover that hope is very personal. It's not just theoretical. It's hope is about a person who's keeping us together as we keep swimming. I think the trouble is that we can't accept incomplete interpretations of the troubling things that we see. The angel doesn't explain it all to Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel doesn't explain it all to Daniel. Daniel has to wake up and get up and go back to work 
not knowing all the details, living in the tension of knowing that more trouble for his people would come, even outside of his own lifetime. And I think the trouble we have is we don't like that. We don't like living, we don't like hanging in the balance, unsure of what will come and unsure of how to interpret what we're seeing. How long, O oh Lord? How long? 2,300 evenings and mornings, but don't worry about it for now. Essentially, forget about it. Forget about it. Seal it up, lock it up. I don't want you to write it down like Isaiah and Jeremiah did so that everybody can hear. That's not what Daniel's doing. He's not a classical prophet. He has these visions and writes them down and locks them away for nobody to see. God is not interested in revealing all knowledge and understanding to us. Faith remains faith. Faith remains for us, as Hebrews 11 says, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not the assurance of things we already have or the conviction of things that are clear to us and perfectly explained. Then we wouldn't need faith and we wouldn't trust God. You may be asking yourself, well, how can I hope when the struggles of my life or the struggles of this world remain unresolved? Great question. My own paralysis, your own mental, emotional, our own corporate paralysis in difficult times when we're not sure how to continue, and we don't want to get up and get out of bed or go, or go to work or reconcile our relationships with one another, um, that paralysis, God has a response to it. It's essentially this, don't worry about it, I'm worrying about it. Yes, yes, we need, we need to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Yes, we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. Yes, we have Ten Commandments. Yes, we have a great commission to make disciples. We know what God wants us to do. It's the stuff that we can't figure out that troubles us. And what God's saying about that stuff is, I don't want you to worry about it. I'm worrying about it. I'll take care of it. You need to trust me. Just keep swimming. Get back to work. I've called you to Babylon. Be my witnesses here. That's what we take away. God does not withhold trouble from us, but neither does He withhold Himself in our troubles. You know, we have a Jesus, we have a Lord who said to His disciples, you will experience trouble in this world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That is probably the most encouraging thing Jesus could have ever said to us. Take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, we worship a God, the God of the Bible, the Christian God, is a God that has already suffered through the very things that He allows us to endure. We hope in a God who sympathizes with us, who is near to the brokenhearted, who is acquainted with grief and sorrow. Whatever you're going through, whatever the pain is, He knows it. He knows it not just theoretically, He knows it experientially because in Christ, He lived it for 33 years. 
He died a horrible death, but he rose from the dead. And that's the proof that God overcomes the very trouble that he endures himself. So we have a God who sympathizes by going through our trouble with us, and we have a God who overcomes that trouble by rising from the dead. There is no greater hope that I can offer you. And that's all the hope that we need. In your uncertainty, okay, in your uncertainty, trust in a God who entered your pain but overcame it on the cross and out of the empty tomb. You're still enduring it right now, but it will end. Whether in this life for a period or whether in the future, in the new life, permanently, God will bring it to an end. You want answers. You want proof. You want facts. But God gave you His Son. And that doesn't mean you throw your intelligence and your reason out the window. But with the things that God hasn't revealed to us, we have to keep coming back to Jesus, which is truly what we need, which God has given to us and revealed to us. We have so much more than Daniel had. We have such a great reason to want to live lives of integrity as Christians in this world because we have more than Daniel had. We look back on the fulfillment of so many of these visions where the kingdom of God would come in force in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So yes, there's a lot in life and in this world to discourage us and trouble us, to make us sick, to, to, to want to stay in bed and not work hard anymore. But Daniel got up and he remained salt and light. And that's what we're called to if we belong to Christ. Keep swimming get out of bed, go back to work, reconcile your relationships, keep at it. God will bring these troubles to an end. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention to the table that our son prepared for us the night he was betrayed 2,000 years ago, as we come to that table, prepare us to see, prepare us to see that you endured so much for us, but that you overcame what you endured. So we thank you that, that we worship a God who sympathizes with our weakness and yet was powerful enough to do something about our pain. Um, thank you, Lord Jesus. As these visions continue to come, help us to stay close to you. Amen.